start everyone on a foundation program. Then we go foundation plus, advanced, advanced plus. The advanced plus would be truly auto-regulated. Like Tier said, that's the best way you can do it. For us, that's guys that we really trust and they've been in the program for multiple years. And backtracking to your point, I think the reason most athletes make a lot of progress early on and then they stall out over their career is there's really no change in the means that are applied to them. You usually go in, you have one program, you just continue doing it year one to year four, recycle over and over. And typically they're very general. You needed more strength speed. So I was like, right, Leachy, we're going to do, um, we're going to do like explosive uh, pin squats for sets of three until you drop by 0.1 meters per second uh, average velocity. And he did 14 sets. <laughs> but when he tested this squat, when he went back down to New Zealand, his max had increased by 45 pounds. That was Nick DeMarco and Kieran and Flat. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. <laughs> Before we get to the show today, I wanted to mention a really cool item that is available now from our sponsor, SimplyFaster.com, in their store. That item is Exogen Premium Wearable Resistance. Exogen is a series of tight-fitting sleeves along with uniquely shaped fusiform weights that strap directly onto those sleeves. So what I mean is you can have shin sleeves, arm sleeves, shorts, and a vest and you can strap these uniquely fusiform-shaped weights that they're light in nature, 100, 200 grams, that strap on in a way that allows you not only to resist movement very specifically, but also add fine-tuned elements of rotation to that resistance. So this is the next level of wearable resistance. You may have heard this from uh, back long ago on the show, Hank Kreienhoff talking about it, to recently Chris Corfis, sprint coach, talking about it. This is the next level in premium wearable resistance. I've used it myself. I love it. I love not only the way it feels and the way you feel form and technique change. It's like combining technique with power. And so often we just think about weighted vests as just pure force, pure downward gravity loaded resistance. This is the ultimate combination of technique with power. And it shows up in things like Chris Corfis being able to take time off an athlete's 10 meter fly by putting the sleeves just on one side of the body and ipsilateral resistance. We're using the body's own systems, fine-tuning it. And that's what this does. It allows you as the coach or an athlete to create, explore, and fine-tune the way that the resistance is rotationally impacting the body. This is next-level stuff, and I know you'll love it. So you can check that out in the Simply Faster store. Head on over to simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com, and get your exogen gear today. There are a lot of important questions that we need to be asking ourselves in the process of training athletes. One of which is how do we keep speed and power gains rolling along once an athlete has the prerequisite general strength they need for their sport? How do we put an athlete in the training bucket that's going to get them that low-hanging fruit that will help them to unlock the next level of their performance? We also need to ask ourselves how can we most effectively maintain the base qualities that we have while improving those low-hanging fruits, those things that are going to get us to the next level? Finally, it's important to ask how can we condition properly to prepare for the worst the most dense and intense play situations that sport might throw at us while losing a minimal amount of strength and speed in that process. To answer these questions, we have sports performance coaches Nick DeMarco and Kirwan and Flat as our guests today. Both of them have been prior guests on this podcast, speaking on topics ranging from perception reaction work, opening and closing loops on the field, training transfer, and a whole lot more. Nick DeMarco is the director of sports performance at Elon University. He is a leader in the NCAA University coaching system in the realms of high-performance ideology. Nick also has skin in the game himself as a former professional athlete and is well-versed in the intuitive aspects as well as the X's and O's of what it takes to be a high achiever on the field. Kirwan and Flat is the founder of the Strength Coach Network as well as Rugby Strength Coach. He's been a physical preparation coach in American football as well as professional rugby for nearly a decade. His experiences have taken him to five different countries, and he is a prominent figure in modern coaching education for physical preparation. On the show today, we'll get into the fine points of off-season and preseason training. And the real uh, keys of this podcast, or I think, I think some of the main points that we'll really get to is the, the buckets that these guys will put their athletes in based off need. So understanding training need, understanding specificity, and how do we get the preseason or how do we get the off-season to preseason training period to really flow 
in a way that is going to help athletes most efficiently reach their goals and cut through those barriers that are holding them back from the next level. This was a show that not only has unique information, but also ties so many things together that we often talk about on this podcast. I'm really excited to get it to you. So let's get on to it. Here, Nick, thanks for coming on the show. Let's kick things off. I'd like to get into some of the vertical integration based stuff because I think that I have been in my own mind thinking, I think about reconciling like at least different emphases, football or any other sport in the college level or pro level is, is a grind. It's a long season. And so yeah, I, I'll ask you this as well, but like the idea of at least mentally breaking up the year into different things. But tell me about that. So I know we oftentimes think of off season uh, for football or any sports, like we'll get stronger, lift weights. Tell me you guys' thoughts on vertical integration. How are you guys splitting up your time and energy into the various elements of the things that are going to transfer to sport throughout the year? Like how does the off season and preseason, does it, does it change much? How, how do things change? I know it's a really broad question, but maybe let's just start with how does it change from the off season, the, the spring to the preseason, the summer for you guys? And how are you guys changing your emphasis there? Well, the problems that you're trying to solve will change according to where you find yourself in the year, who you're faced with, all that kind of stuff. So let's work backwards. Okay. So if you say in camp or in season, well, let's say, yeah, in, in season, what is the problem that you're trying to solve? It's basically tactical technical because you can look at physical variables. They're extremely stable week to week. A, a fluctuation of 10% is considered wild for physical variables. And yet the, uh, the results just vary wildly on the field. Why? Tactical, technical. So it's your ability to execute a game plan that always operates from a position of strength, exploits your opponent's weaknesses and so on. So if there's limited time in a week and you've got one thing that's not moving the needle and you've got another thing that really is, it should make sense that the bulk of your time and energy and effort goes into the thing that is and everything else that is not a limiting factor is reduced. Working backwards from that, you get to camp it's going to be less adjustment week to week. You know, where are they strong? Where, where are they weak? And this, asking the same question for us and coming up with a game plan to do that, it's probably going to be more the, the install and the, the accumulation of time basically to master that system. Working backwards from that, what's the problem that you're trying to solve is everybody breaks their athletes within the first seven to 10 days of camp due to a lack of exposure as we just said, to the, the high-intensity actions, they're going to be required to display within the context of their position. So ask yourself, what, what do you most get tired doing? What do you do most often? What's, what's of greatest significance to the outcome of the game? That's the stuff that you need to be a master of and robust to within the context of your position. So for us at William & Mary, when I was there, we, we spent that last month or so prior to camp of ramping up those efforts as much as possible so that hopefully the camp was a deload or, or at least business as usual and also giving them a taste of the worst case scenario in terms of how many and how often they had to repeat those efforts that would be how we would spend july basically working backwards again to june it would be well the problem is if you just do that stuff, you're never going to optimally prepare for the sport because there's a reason strength coaches have a job. And it's because if you just practice the sport and its variations and that's it, you're never going to optimally develop. So, you know, you're going to want to do some dedicated speed work, strength work, power work, and so on. And it's typically going to be like on, on field stuff, like speed, grappling, that kind of stuff. And working backwards from that, that's when you can start to get into solving the problem of for each athlete, there's probably going to be a limiting factor within the system that's impeding the expression of those outputs that underpin performance. So we would ask ourselves, you know, not definitively, but we'd say, you know, what's, what's the body comp like? Are they in the ballpark for, for body weight, lean mass, fat mass? If they are, are they strong enough? If they're strong enough, are they powerful enough? If they're powerful enough, are they fast enough? Or are they on team rice paper, always injured? We were trying to address those factors. So that would basically be our kind of like May, June, July, August into the season. And in reality, to me, 
the spring season, which is the worst idea in sports because you're you're basically risking breaking your, your athletes for a game that nobody cares about to get in the way of preparing for the games that people do care about. For us, it was just a smaller version of that. So with um, you're basically talking about like buckets, like what is yeah. your lowest hanging fruit across the board? And I'm sure that's different. I know you're going to be getting into high school a little bit too. So I imagine a lot of those buckets will probably, probably change. I don't have experience in college or high school football, but it'll be, I'd be interested to get your take on, you know, moving into that situation yeah. or versus rugby. But basically you're saying those buckets would be, I mean, I'm sure it's different, but like you need lean mass strength or speed or injury resiliency. I mean, how much in reality, how much did you find that able to play out? Or maybe can you go into that a little bit as well? And Nick, feel free to yeah. jump in too as well. I don't want to take this one too far, but. It, you know, the, the ideal scenario would be everyone's a snowflake. That's right, right amount, right time, repeat every single day. You're collecting data to inform that. But the reality is, especially in the poorer schools, even in college, and it probably gets a lot worse in, in high schools. You simply don't have the resources to do that or to, to implement it. So like you said, it's a bucket approach. You're asking broad questions of, do we have clusters of athletes that fit into different categories? And then how can we push out a program that is fulfilling those needs, but is still relatively scalable, and easy to manage? So we can get into the detail of it, but the way that we, we did that was with Team Builder. So we, we created several different calendars within team builder at once and we would assign athletes to that so we could have 40 people in the gym running five different programs and all they had to do was look at their phone to get it with regard to pursuing the goals of those different buckets we would kind of ask ourselves what are the primary means that we might use to address that particular weakness what is the kind of like maximum productive volume intensity and so on can we expose them to to improve it and then for everything else what's going to be the bare minimum or what's appropriate to just retain development in those areas and that would be how we would kind of push in that that weakness block and with regard to the developmental stuff wherever possible the answer would be auto regulation because by definition if you're auto regulating every set of a target ability you've hit the maximum productive volume for that session. Those five buckets, I, th I think you mentioned them already, but could you just clarify what those, if those were five? And I imagine too, if you were like, if it was like a poor school or a high school, it might be like three buckets or two buckets or, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's a logistical it's constraint more than anything, I guess. Yeah. It, it, like we, with me, Scott and a bunch of assistants, maybe Eric dipping in and out, mm -hmm. we, we, we could we were confident that we could just about get five groups running simultaneously. But yeah, we, the questions we asked ourselves, you know, if you're always injured, does it matter how fast you can run a 40? No. Okay. Mm -hmm. So right. Be, be on the field. Some guys are just, if you ask a question, if the strength coach didn't exist or the sport coach didn't exist, in which situation would the team be better off? And the answer of course is the strength coach mm -hmm. wouldn't exist. So right. Rule number one, be on the field, be a master of your sport and go do that same thing it's just a hard fact that there are anthropometric barriers to entry that you must clear if you want to thrive within your position and of course they go up the, the levels that you go up so you know for example um nick may correct me but like you're probably never going to play in the nfl as an o-lineman if you're less than 300 pounds especially left tackle so guess what <laughs> yeah if, if you're a, if you're a left tackle and you're playing power five football and you're 275, that needs to be cleared. And then the benefit of that is you're probably going to gain some uh, lean mass, which may increase capacity to increase max strength. And then once you've done that, once you've cleared the barrier, you say, right, okay, strength. Why would we pursue strength first? Because if you look at the bonded tube classification, typically um, SPP efforts, barbell lifting is going to be more general in nature. You can push it down the road where you use those specific means and keep getting that transfer. And it kind of provides that foundation for other abilities to, to be developed across the, the force velocity spectrum. And we can look at that simple data that says, generally, the stronger you are, the more robust you're going to be to all forms of injury, regardless of mechanism. And then we start to get into like the ballistic power because 
one RM barbell strength is going to transfer to explosive movement to a point and it's lower than people think. But once, once you've cleared those, then you actually need to start to express force at high speed, even in general means. And then lastly, it's like, well, actually, you need to look at speed of movement in sport and skills, which for the majority of football is going to be sprinting and, and changing direction. So that, that was the reason that we kind of like asked those questions in order. So this bucket would be mass, basically mass strength, speed, robustness, or people who are always getting hurt. And then what robustness. Uh, body composition, maximum oh, strength, it. maximum power, maximum speed. Got it. Got it. Yeah. And I, I agree with you. And I'm excited to you know turn this over to Nick here with like the how strong, especially as you progress through the levels. And I've heard the stat that like college football players, their first year, they might get a little faster, jump a little higher, but beyond that, that you don't see much of any change. And so it's like, well, what buckets should they be in? Right. And I'm in a good situation for myself now. I'm just that's forcing me to work under different paradigms is I'm working with, he just graduated high school and he's preparing to play D3 college football alignment. And his need is just pure mass. He just needs to get bigger. And so for me, actually, I put away the speed, you know, the 10 yard dash, like I just put it away. I just, cause it's like, I don't even want to tempt myself to be honest. Cause it's like, I need to turn my own wheels and not go to what my typical thing is and just be like, Hey, and it's a good chance for me to grow. And so it's those, you know, so I'm working on my mass bucket there with that one. And that's been a good opportunity. But so, Nick, I'm excited to hear your take on this. And it's particularly my question, too, and I think the important thing is, like Kira, you said, how strong is strong enough before we start throwing in different buckets? And so, Nick, can you share your thoughts on all this? Yeah, so our buckets is, is kind of similar in some ways. We start everyone on a foundation program. Then we go foundation plus, advanced, advanced plus. The advanced plus would be truly auto-regulated. Like Tier said, that's the best way you can do it. For us, that's guys that we really trust and they've been in the program for multiple years. And backtracking to your point, I think the reason most athletes make a lot of progress early on and then they stall out over their career is there's really no change in the means that are applied to them. You usually go in, you have one program, you just continue doing it year one to year four, recycle over and over. And typically they're very general programs as is. Uh, it's always chasing strength. And like Kier said, you can reach those strength numbers a lot sooner than people think. Like you definitely don't need a two times body weight squat to successfully run fast. And so our goals change with each program. Foundation program, in my experience, I think probably batting 100% on this. If you come in as a college freshman and you get stronger, you're probably going to get faster. You're going to jump higher. Just increasing body mass is important. Changing some of your bigger guys that you get to a little bit more lean body mass is important. And increasing relative strength should always be the goal, um, not just mass moving more mass. And so the foundation program is really movement competency, starts to teach them, obviously, the skills on the field. And the weight room is just super general. We'll start with like an eccentric block to make sure that they can do the patterns well, an isometric block, and then we get into one by 20. So we just keep everything as general as possible. Key movement patterns that we like, bilateral, unilateral, horizontal push-pull, vertical push-pull, and strong basic torso movements. So kind of heavily influenced by like one by 20 guys and Zach Dakin with his movement over maxes and just logic of training athletes should be foundational in nature. Then we moved to our foundation plus. So we'll still chase strength to some degree. This would be after the completion of their freshman year, because at that point, there's some guys who are going to benefit greatly from it, especially your linemen. And there's some guys who will get some benefit, but obviously it starts to shift over a little bit more towards also on-field speed, power. And that's where we'll introduce some of the ballistic stuff in the weight room. So our general becomes a little bit more specific. And then our advanced group will break into buckets. So they'll have rate limiting factor of speed, power, or strength. We'll put them into those three buckets and we'll also separate our linemen and our on-the-field guys. On the field, we always keep it in our line group because they get tired from pushing other humans. They work in smaller spaces. So their on-field work is always separate and our semi and skill groups are always separate. And we'll even break off the semi and skill because they have different distances and different speeds that they operate out of most of the time. Uh, and then our advanced plus just becomes auto-regulated and more advanced. And it'll still be based off kind of rate limiter things. If you have a guy who is strong enough, or like here said, uh, you have a guy who he just struggles with injuries, whatever it may be. For them, it's really finding that minimal 
effective dose and the things that they're already good enough at and trying to move the needle as safely as possible at that max recoverable value. Like when you get a freshman versus the longer guys in the program, the more work they should be able to handle. Although you probably throw a little bit less at them. And I think that's kind of lost in the idea of if you're doing speed work, it needs to be minimum effective dose or your optimal window as much as possible. If you're doing power work, you probably want to and that as much as possible. Your cover volume is what is going to keep people healthy and what is really important for building a guy up for camp. And you always want to be able to move the needle on that. Um, so our on-field work, it's hitting some of that max recoverable volume because you're prepping them for camp at the end of the offseason. Um, but the offseason starts kind of that bonder chuck GPP to your more specific as we go in every domain. Even when we start with like tactical agility type stuff, it's one-on-one scenarios in a really small space that's not necessarily specific. But well, like here brought up off air, we might want to just see 90 degree cuts. So create a scenario that elicits a, a 90 degree cut and it starts general and then it gets into two on two scenarios or small sided games and things like that as you get closer to the season. Uh, and same thing with your weight room stuff. It's not going to be the huge emphasis the entire time, but it starts with a little bit of a greater emphasis and slowly phases to more on field work as we go. And the biggest difference in season out of season. Out of season, you have to push the threshold on that max recoverable volume because you're prepping them for camp. In season, that bucket is already full. Like they're spending a ton of time on the field. So to me, it's keeping guys as fresh as you can. And that's really where we focus on kind of rate limiters is, okay, we only get two hours per week, three hours per week, whatever it may be out of a 20-hour week from care hour standpoint. What is the most important thing to this athlete? And We'll spend our high day in the weight room on that. And our low day is just kind of your Mladen Jovanovic minimum viable performance. Like what are the things that you have to do to keep an athlete healthy? We want to make sure we're, we're hitting all of our very general things as well to keep a guy resilient throughout the season. Yeah. So something I heard both of you guys say that I want to further a little bit, you both talked about auto-regulation. I think that those foundational phases that, that one by 20, I know Kier, last time you were on the podcast with Eric, you guys talked about the one by 20 kind of rolling and just really milking out those gains as long as possible. And I, we've had a lot of one by 20 talks. And I think a lot of people listening to this are very familiar with like just foundational strength. But you guys both mentioned auto-regulation. And I can't help but think about that point that is so common where an athlete has achieved foundational strength, size, what have you. And we do think about that, that stagnation in that so often happens in the strength and speed measures later in the years of college and university so tell me a little bit more about the auto-regulation. Once an athlete has those markers, how are you auto-regulating their, their strength work or even their speed work as they get into their sophomore, junior, senior years to help them just, I guess, hit those, hit those minimal markers but, and not overdo it and preserve their energy for the field? You want me to answer? Either, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, the, the, the reason for... The, the auto-regulation, as you alluded to, is that when you're dealing with athletes of a low training age, the amount of stress that they need to maximally adapt, because there's obviously a limit to the amount of adaptation that you can get per unit of time, the amount of stress that they need to be exposed to to do that represents a tiny proportion of the total stress that they can be exposed to, again, within a given time limit. So the, the overwhelming likelihood is that all of the things that you want to pursue within a day, week, month, whatever, you can optimally adapt to all of them and not exceed the total stress capacity of the athlete, which means that the likelihood is they're going to stay healthy. The annoying thing about being a human being that trains is that threshold is always increasing with every exposure to training. And obviously, the, the bigger the bomb you drop on them, the faster it happens. This is another reason why the one by 20 is great. But it's just a fact that eventually you're, you're forced into a situation whereby if you were to pursue equally all of the things that you want, you're going to start to exceed that threshold of, of stress uh, tolerance, which means that one of two things is going to happen. Either you're, you will push yourself or someone will push you to the point where you're going to break. Or you start to inhibit and put the brakes on and you don't actually start to exceed what you need to adapt anymore. 
So this is where the, the vertical integration comes in and you say, right, okay, we can not necessarily adapt to a bunch of stuff that we, we are not going to prioritize right now, but we can certainly scale it back and hold on to the adaptation or if we have to lose it, lose it at a very, very slow rate. And it frees up the rest of the pie for you to really put time, energy, and effort into the development of a couple of key abilities. And when you look at the abilities that you want to train, we know that the conditions that you expose someone to in exercise is going to create a certain kind of intracellular environment, which creates signals that switches on genes that end up with adaptations. And the more you get outside of those necessary conditions, the less likely it is that you're going to hit the required target and get the adaptations that you want. And it's, if we just have a real world example, we know with advanced trainees that probably they need to be lifting in excess of 85% of their one RM with good intent uh, on a fairly consistent basis to increase maximum strength. If we lift with 40% of one RM, for example, it's not going to work. So the question that I'm asking myself is what's the thing that I'm targeting? What are the exercise conditions that are going to result in the adaptation that I want? And then what tools or technology do I have available to measure those exercise conditions and make sure that my athletes are hitting the target? And then how do I create the kind of workout that's going to make sure that once my athlete can't do that, we're shutting them down because once you start to get athletes that are just going through the motions and not creating that strong signal for adaptation, you're creating the fatigue. And obviously with fatigue comes risk, but you're not getting any, any of the benefit of adaptation. So to me, the joy of AREG training, auto-regulatory training is you're maximizing the, the benefit that you get that you get in terms of adaptation for the cost that you're paying in terms of fatigue and risk. I wanted to take a break from the show and briefly share with you the difference that performance herbalism can make for you. Several years ago, I had Logan Christopher, CEO of Lost Empire Herbs, on the show to talk about uh, hypnosis and mental training for athletes. While talking to him, I realized he also had an herbalism company. So shortly thereafter, I used the Phoenix Formula, which was my first product I bought from them. I had great results with it, not only increasing my energy and decreasing my need for coffee and caffeine, but I also noticed that it was making an impact on my lifts and my weight room numbers. I was having a great training experience. Shortly thereafter, I also got into the shiliagit resin as well as other herbs. And I don't look at supplementation the same way. I'm a strong believer in what Logan and his company are doing in looking for a natural resource to boost human performance. If you want to check out the herbs that I use personally from Lost Empire Herbs, you can head to www.lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. There you can get 15% off your order and they offer a 365-day money-back guarantee. Definitely check them out. Let's get on back to the show. So what is the what would an AREG like strength session look like then in terms of how many sets and then using biofeedback to shut it down? Or um, Nick, I know you yeah. talked about it as so, well. How does that look? How does it look? The crudest might be just looking at bar speed. Or you can do idiot-proof stuff like APRE from Brian Mann. You can for us when we when we wanted to do like say we're say we're doing a unilateral circuit to, to concentrate on asymmetry, we would we would maybe do escalating density training for a given time limit. Can you increase your volume uh, within a given time limit? You can look at like um, drop-offs. You say, right, we're, we're targeting hypertrophy. We are going to, we're going to keep doing sets until you can't do, I don't know, 20% of your best number of reps, for example. You can do VBT. There's, there's plenty of uh, documentation about there on, on um, velocity thresholds for the development of maximal strength. You can do all kinds of ways. It's basically just looking at what you have available, what you can manage within the group and what your group is going to be comfortable doing and then picking what works for you. Got it. Another thing I've thought about with doing some of those various uh, auto reg type setups is, is do, you, do you cap it? You know what I'm saying? Like if an athlete is just like a freak and can maintain a bar speed for eight, 10 sets, right? Like you, is there a a cap where it's like, look, like this, you've done a great job. Like let's save the rest of this. Or how does that, do you have any kind of contingencies when it comes to some of the higher ends of those things? It depends on the context of what else is going on in the day. You know, if, 
if, for example, you know, uh, well, I'll, I'll give you a real world example. I, I trained a guy in um, Japan and I was, I was toying around with the, the JB Marin stuff in terms of force velocity pri- profiling. And it came up that he was a force or yeah, it was kind of like mid, mid range, but he was, he needed more strength speed. So I was like, right, Leachy, we're going to do, um, we're going to do like explosive uh, pin squats for sets of three until you drop by 0.1 meters per second uh, average velocity. And he did 14 sets. <laughs> but when he tested this squat, when he went back down to New Zealand, his max had increased by 45 pounds. Yeah. So it may feel sometimes that, wow, you know, this, this guy is, he's going all day. He's a freak and, and so on, but it may actually be what that athlete needs. Mm. Now, is that a smart is it a smart decision if, for example, they're about to get flogged on the field and maybe you've got fly tens planned and so on? No, but this is where the judgment I think comes in about you know what is what is the appropriateness of this decision in the context of everything that is going on and can you change what's going on in the gym, what's going on in the field, so everything kind of lines up together. But you would be surprised, I think. Well, not you, obviously, but I might one be. would be surprised. <laughs> just how much some athletes need and just how little some athletes need. Because if we look at like a a normal distribution of a hundred people and we say on average, you need five sets, there's going to be like 35% of the people that fall outside of that one standard deviation that need a lot more or a lot less. Mm -hmm. And they say, you know, two standard deviations, is it like 10% of people? They're going to need a huge amount of volume to actually move the needle. And I remember in the early days of me experimenting with this at London Wasps, I had one guy do three sets and I had another guy do 17 sets of auto-regulated power work. So it just kind of reinforces sometimes how different we can be in our needs. Yeah, three to 17 is a massive span. I, and I, part of me wishes that I've experimented more with some of that. And I was the person too who mentally, I think a lot of that is mentally, like being able to mentally generate, continually generate that intention like what's, yeah. what's in the mind or what's lost in the mind as you move through the sets. But I wish I would have experimented more with some of those bandwidths because I do agree that there's those different volume needs completely. Nick, do you have a, I know you mentioned auto regulation as well. Do you have any thoughts on that or anything to expand on that? Yeah, same with the same concept. Like even our young guys will do some things that are auto regulated. Like you brought up APRE. We'll just use like everyday max, like reps in reserve is a big thing with our foundation guys. So, hey, you have one rep in reserve today. If you are asked to hit a set of five, pick a weight that you could hit for six and just keep going. Um, and I think it gives them a better feel of what weights they can choose versus you just telling them what to do all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, gets them a little bit more in tune with what they're doing. And it can push the needle a little bit further because they know what they're capable of on that day versus just coming in and going 85% because that's what you had plans. Like, make your high days high and send it when you feel really good and then do everything you can to recover to where you can do it again the next time you want to. And like velocity-based training, I think sometimes gets a bad name because people who are, who are smart, but still just make dumb comments of, Oh, the real velocity-based training is speed work. Like, well, of course it is. That's not what we're talking about. It is percentage-based and velocity-based. Like you're just dictating the percentages based on velocity. It's pretty common sense, but people screwed up for whatever reason. I think that's going to allow you to hit the optimal quality. Like, you know, exactly what speed you're getting, ideally what quality that you're training, and you can be extremely precise in your percentages. And it just shows you where an athlete is at on that day. And I think Matt Gildersleeve is the one that introduced me to it, but using the timing gates and your speed work to regulate a guy's total number of reps, I thought was a really good idea. So like for fly tens, if a guy hits his first rep and hits a PR, he would shut them down because they ran the fastest they ever had. In my experience, a guy who runs a PR probably isn't going to PR again the next time and is probably at the most risk for injury is what I have seen. If he had a guy who has, you know, he's 98% or 97%, he would set a percentage drop off for the day with a cap. Like, hey, the most reps we're going to get is four. And so if a guy is in that 98, 99, and he keeps trending up, he would let him go until he hit a PR or he dropped below. So putting a cap on it, I think is helpful for the speed work because you have a certain volume you might not want to go past uh, and there's a little higher risk. 
but like Keir said, the guy did 17 sets versus one guy did three. Myself personally, I've tested the limits of like max recoverable volume and things like that, where it's just set a bar speed. And I think I've squatted like 90% of my max 32 minutes in a row. I was wow. just going every minute on the minute, trying to keep a certain speed until I dropped. And no, not normal. It's, <laughs> it's crazy what you can do though, some days and what you can't do. Like your training volume capability, uh, your speed capabilities change so much day to day that it makes so much sense to go to something that's auto-regulated because it takes into account how you feel. Having a structured plan is great and you might catch the majority, but an auto-regulated plan, as long as they're putting really good intent to the training, is going to catch a lot more people um, because it's taking into account how they feel on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that ties up some of the things I was thinking of in my head when I mentioned with the cap. A lot of what I think is is the high, the real high threat stuff, meaning like a, a, a 10 meter fly is a high threat if you do enough of it, you know, Yeah. and the stuff that the body's going to perceive, like doing 17 10 meter flies just because you didn't drop off. I think the body would react differently to that than 17 pin squats where there's not as much threat because yeah. it's a pin like you, you drop yeah. it. You're not going to die. You know, you're not going to die. Like <laughs> I also I, I think setting a cap kind of creates a higher level of intent because you're really competitive guys want to move the bar. And mm-hmm. as long as it's not like good arts law, it's not making it poor quality. As long as the quality stays high, I think it just increases that intent rep to rep. If you said, Hey, the cap is eight today. You're really competitive guys are going to want to get there versus if you just leave it open-ended, they'll just kind of go by the feel of the room. If one guy does three, the next guy might be content to do four or five and then, kind of back off a little bit because it definitely is a, a, a mindset thing of approaching everything with that same level of intent yeah it, it makes me think a little bit of that um that db hammer greatest sports training book whoever wrote it had <laughs> talked about the drop-offs because everything in that book was drop-off related you would just go till you dropped off by x percentage and the drop-offs for speed were much less than strength like strength in the book yeah. at least it had you you could drop off to 10 percent and whereas speed was like three. And I think and I was when I was talking with Dan Fichter, I don't remember if he said this or not. I feel like he did, but like even like just one percent with speed. And that's where I've I've always been more conservative with that with at least speed. I think where it hasn't carried over as much. I, I mean, personally I feel like I could do like if it was like Olympic lifting or something, you're throwing the bar down again, low threat, like I feel like you can do a lot of rounds of that stuff and your body isn't gonna react as negatively versus if you go over the limit on a sprint or a plyometric or something like that, that it could be a lot more negative. So anyways, I, I, that's interesting. Just like the, the strength versus the speed and then everything that goes with that. Well, I think what it is, like you said, the bigger the combination of force and or speed, which is basically sprinting, the less forgiving that quality is going to be one for subpar outputs and two for uh, sloppy form. So that's why, like you said, you would, you would set a much, much, stricter drop-off because in, in all likelihood it's not productive i think where where it can fall down a little bit is when especially in speed is when you're dealing with especially high level athletes a true 100 is when things can get a little bit dicey in terms of looking at so you know there's i think it's like paraphrasing charlie francis there is way more than a 5% difference between 95% and 100%. Yeah, in terms of yeah, neurological, in terms yeah. of the after effects. Yeah, the, the yeah, true 100, yeah. especially if there's an audience watching, you could be recovering for two or three weeks, truly. <laughs> Versus yeah. a, a controlled 93 or 95, you could be good the next day. So yeah, I yeah, totally yeah. agree with that. That actually brings yeah. me up to, I was just thinking the same thing with speed, right? And the auto regulation. And you guys were talking about conditioning all the way at the beginning of the show. How does that extrapolate out into conditioning based stuff? You know, like auto regulating people's longer sprinting, speed endurance, those kind of things. Uh, one point I was actually going to bring up was like Cam Rinks at our, our basketball guy. He has done that with, they wear heart rate monitors. So just getting the stimulus you want. Like if someone is crashing and burning during a aerobic based kind of just cardiac output session, you're missing the mark on what you're trying to do. So he has let heart rate be the determining factor for when they start the next rep. Hmm. So people might have longer work to rest ratios than others just because of their current level of fitness. So that's one way, but like for us, we'll use speeds 
to set the distances rather than everyone running an arbitrary distance and it taking different times. We'll have the same time of work at different distances is one way that we've changed it that just makes a little bit more sense to me. If a guy runs six yards less, it's not the biggest deal from volume standpoint, but it can make a big deal in their just recovery between bouts and ability to complete the, the training as prescribed. Yeah, it's like kind of like easy strength. I, I think it's like easy strength for cardio. Like it's just, you don't, you know, watching the heart rate and just making sure, again, you don't overwork. My gut would say you, that work would be a little more forgiving in terms of how much you could do or get away with. But then I do think of, you know, if you overdo like the lactate bucket, like some of the moxie monitor type people have said, if you have too much of those, some people just aren't going to respond, especially like your compressors and the conditioning, the people who compress their muscles hard, generate more lactate than the guy next to them they're going to have a very different response. So it would make sense that if it's going to be a pure, it's more of an aerobic session that you aren't, you know, taking that to the house. Some guys taking that to the house is going to eat, eat into all the other, you know, outputs that they're going to do. Well, and, and the thing is, again, it goes back to that thing about where are you in the year? Because it's probably a fact that let's, let's pull out like a crazy uh, number. Like, oh, if you, if you run 20 plays back to back, if you imagine like a 20 play drive, you are going to get so past the point where it's probably productive in terms of like repeat speed that you're, you're maintaining 95% of your max uh, output on every rep. Okay. So from an auto-regulatory standpoint, you say, well, you know, you, you're probably going to drop off before that. It's not going to be productive. We, we would shut that down. That's great for the development. For example, if you wanted to do repeat sprint ability, which I think is kind of like a made up ability, but anyway, if you wanted to develop that and auto-regulate it, that would be where you would cut it off. However, conceivably, could you find yourself in the situation in a season where you have to play 20 plays back-to-back? Yeah, you probably could. And it, that probably does represent the worst-case scenario that you might be exposed to during the course of the season. So off the top of my head, I think Navy, last year or the year before, they did like 18 plays in a drive. So it's that pulling between two different extremes what optimally develops a key ability and what does the game look like and that's why i think there has to be that transition you have to eventually take off the hat of optimal development and say okay we've developed what we're going to develop now we have to take that and start to get ready for ideally the sport but in all likelihood the hardest thing they're going to do all year is camp and you have to get them ready for that got it so is it basically like almost like minimal effective dose of like the main buckets as per what they need. And then in the run up to camp, that's when maybe more of that, I guess you could say not, not that it makes sense in light of the game, but, but kind of yeah. tilting the scales, we're tilting everything yeah. down in favor of this potential worst case scenario where it's a drive. Yeah, I mean, you, you can say, especially strength coach, you'll say, they are, you know, 10, 10 reps is optimal. Guess what? Your football coach doesn't care. <laughs> and, and the game doesn't care. Sometimes the game doesn't care what's optimal. It's like, well, the game demands this. Go get ready. And you can wring your hands about what's optimal. But the, the truth is, if you don't expose them to sometimes crazy high workloads, they're going to break. So I, you know, I know a guy that works in the private sector. And his like, final conditioning before he sends them off the camp in the NFL is like basically four sets of 10 uh, on the tread sled, which is way beyond what is optimal. But it's like, well, guess what? If they ask you to do this in camp, you know you can do it. You're not going to break. And there are a lot of people that cannot answer that question with a high degree of confidence that are going to camp. Yeah, that's a good point, especially for someone like myself. I I tend to be very precautious and look at your know, speed and power. It must be preserved. But at the, like you said, the field, the game doesn't care. <laughs> and yeah. uh, sometimes just stuff happens like that and you have to be ready for it. Nick, I'm curious what your take is on that, like kind of in that preparation for some of the more extreme demands of the game. Yeah, I mean, very similar to Kier. I'm not huge on the actual use of repeat sprint ability. Like within the training session, we'll do a lot of aerobic work and, and tempo-based stuff early on. We'll do speed work on the other end of the spectrum. And I think those two qualities blended together make people really good at repeat sprint ability. But when we get into that special prep phase and we're in July, we do very simulated like by positions or line guys they'll get up to we call them like plays quote unquote but it's essentially three to five seconds of work with 15 to 35 seconds rest and then we'll break it into variable series because i think the stress inoculation side of 
like just some chaotic stress is also important. I think a lot of guys who are quote unquote in shape struggle when they get out there and there's a little bit more unknown or they struggle tactically and you get that elevated heart rate because of some psychological things, not just physical. But so when we get into those, it will be, you know, our defensive backs, they might be backpedaling 10 yards and then breaking like they're covering a post route or breaking like they're covering a hitch. Like they're almost simulated plays with the specific work to rest ratios of football. The linemen will be pushing a sled or our D linemen are doing a little bit more curved linear stuff. The offensive linemen might be kick sliding for some, some of the bouts. They might be acting like they're getting up to a linebacker, but it's all essentially cone patterns or pushing a sled for our big guys that represent what they have to do on the field. And I know a game for us on average is about 80 plays per side of ball. So typically that last week of summer, we've tried to build up to 80 to 90 plays to build a little bit of a buffer and make sure that they're prepared to do those things in a controlled setting because we've progressed throughout the summer. But giving them a taste of that in July is, I think, a huge help for when they get into camp and they get into games. They've already experienced it and they've progressed up to it soundly. Um, versus just being thrown to the fire when they get to it. Because a lot of people will say, oh, it's not the best thing to do to prepare them for the sport, which I tend to agree with, but it is a part of the sport and it's necessary, especially like the practice demands that they'll face. So when we get into July, we'll push some of those things that might not be as important necessarily to succeed in a game, but are important for just surviving and be able to stay healthy throughout the year. Yeah, it's That's, you know, that's, that's one of the more like insightful things that an athlete had said to me that changed my mind when I was in Japan, which is I kind of was, was shitting on the, the lactate bath and, you know, those really, really hard sessions. But what his reply to me was, until you've been in that situation on the field, and occasionally you will find yourself in that situation on the field, he said, you, you won't know the value of being able to say, I've been here before. So I think ultimately all sport preparation tactically technically physically psychologically you're trying to answer the question have i been here before and normally when you see people go to shit it's physically they've never been there before and that's when things start to break down you see it in the ufc all the time they're presented with a tactical problem that they have not been in front of before and they don't know the answer to and that's when things start to break down so what what is optimal and what's, what's great for learning and teaching isn't necessarily putting them in the environment they want to, to master. You can't master an, an environment that you've not inhabited. I feel like um, you see this. I know I've seen it in track and field. I've heard of it. I've never coached CrossFit, but I've heard of it being done in CrossFit, like this ends to middle type of training where you start with um, the pure speed and power and then the pure aerobic on the other end. And as you get closer to the actual thing, you start to get in that middle zone, which is probably the most intensive that lactate zone is the most demanding zone it's hard to do a lot for the whole year <laughs> but i think yeah. some people do it that way but like even yeah, track and field training for the 400 do you want to have a lactate that if you did lactate bath barf workouts the whole year you'd just be mentally and probably physically burnt you have to kind of yeah. save that for that point where it's like okay now we really need to get into this stuff yeah you guys um i think you both alluded to i know Kira, you said it specifically i wanted to get to this i've been like I thought about this and then I was saving it because I didn't want to get back to it. But because I've actually not really talked about this concept on this podcast as much as I can really remember, but the, the robustness bucket, the injury prevention bucket, we talk so often about, okay, you need that. You need, you need strength. You need mass. You need speed. I mean, we've covered speed on the show a lot, but I don't think we've talked about much about that athlete that just is hurt all the time. So what is the robustness bucket look like? That was a really interesting concept. I'd be curious to hear you guys' uh, expansion on those athletes. You want to go first, Nate? Yeah, sure. Really, it's, it's kind of what are the injuries? Because obviously, the number one predictor of injury is previous injury to that area. So what continues to break and work backwards from there on how you can fix it? Where are they typically getting injured? Is it the end of practice? Is it at the start of camp? Where do you typically see issues flare up? And I would say most of the time, it's always a person that just doesn't handle high volumes of work very successfully. So it's just cutting out volume. And we've talked a lot about, obviously, you want to make people robust and you want to hit these worst case scenarios. But for some athletes, especially depending on how important they are to the success of the team, 
just cutting out as much as you can and knowing do they achieve all the barriers to entry like here talked about earlier they have the size strength speed etc to perform what they have to do okay let's just get them to game day as healthy as we can and get as many high quality snaps plays etc out of them as you can so i think really just cutting volume is important and being smart with the way you progress them and use them throughout the week in practice uh, as a sport coach is important but then just trying to sure up anything on your side that you can dependent on the injury obviously if it's reoccurring hamstring injuries trying to get them exposed to high speed sprinting in the safest way possible without causing an injury increasing hamstring strength whether it's working on pelvis position making sure that they can run well i think it just really break down to the person and what it was that they need based off of their history yeah i, I agree completely it's you're just posing the same question but in a different context so what causes injury by definition is uh imbalance between the demands placed upon the athlete and the capacity of the athlete to resist that and then you can start to dig a level deeper and say okay well is it through uh, completely inappropriate demands or is it through insufficient capacity? And if it's capacity, you say, right, is it, is it a sudden kind of acute trauma or acute inability to handle those demands or is it a progressive decline? And that will start to, to lead you down the path of, of coming to answers and you can look at the injury that they're faced with. What's the common mechanism? And then trying to, you're, you're basically always trying to address that equation what are the training interventions that we can give this athlete specific to their injury that is gonna make them more robust to uh, the demands placed upon them and then much more importantly is to me working with all of the athlete stakeholders to more effectively manage those demands which nick talked about which is sometimes you just need to get them to, to game day and the thing is if you look at what we do as physical preparation coaches, there's really a, a small potential to improve within a given time frame. So if you look at the data in rugby, if you're increasing you know, grown men's maximal strength by 5% a year, you're doing a great job. Whereas can an can a overzealous sport coach make them more than 5% weaker in a day of dumb training? You bet they can. So there's that asymmetry there between your ability to mitigate against what a sport coach is doing is minuscule in comparison to their potential to blow up that athlete. So the, the greatest return on your effort as a practitioner should probably be on the education and collaboration with everyone that touches that athlete rather than looking for the perfect rehab exercise. Although what you do within a rehab program is, of, is of course, going to be important. Got it. So within that bucket, I mean, is it more so almost more like a flag than than an actual because when you said it, I was my mind goes to like, oh, here's an actual workout for people who struggle with injury in the sense of like my mind goes to coaches like or from what I've heard of like Jay Schrader's methodology with athletes who have struggled with the injury history or the Marinovich's and their training system, which is usually like a lot less weightlifting and a lot more body weight isometrics and proprioception and joint control and all those things, of course. I have a strong belief that a lot of people who are injury prone, it's a lot of like mental and emotional stuff that works into the body. Of course, yeah. Um, well, here's, here's the thing. You can have five different guys present with the same injury with five different underlying causes. And this is where you have to be a little bit of a detective and, and really dig as to why it's happening rather than saying, yo, hamstring injury, here's the hamstring rehab program. because you might have one athlete that has, you know, a horrendous uh, overstride when they sprint. You might have another guy that's uh, going through a divorce. They've just had a baby and their, their sleep cycle is like absolute shit. You might have another athlete that disappears for the summer. And when they come back and they get put into those football sessions, that's the first thing they've ever been exposed to if in, in a long time. So like it, that's, that's a workload question. It might just be uh, simple relative eccentric strength, which if, if we look at the data, you have that so-called quadrant of doom of, of low relative eccentric force and short sarcomere length. It's absolutely a factor. So it's, it's 
asking better questions or asking like more deliberate questions to try and identify the root cause and then coming up with an intervention to target that rather than having a blanket prescription for whatever problem you're faced with. Yeah. So what I wanted to get at was basically like, is there, is there an actual bucket? Like this is the training program or it's more of a flag. Like it's more of a, I mean, which is it, is it kind of, or is it kind of both? Like, is there an actual training program for these athletes in terms of a general sense, like using less compressive loading, or is it more of just a flag by which to understand? And, and, um, like you said, you have to get to the individual root cause. Yeah, to me, it's, it's more of a, it's a prompt. It's a prompt rather than, oh, you know, you, you fulfill this criteria, like you're, you're in the injury bucket. Yeah, that's it's self-fulfilling more... prophecy too. That would be, <laughs> yeah, that might yeah, not yeah, be so, good. Yeah. To me, it's like, Hey, you, you need to pay closer attention to this. Got it. Got it. Nick, you have any thoughts on that? Uh, same way. It, it's definitely more of a flag and there will be individual things that we'll do. And especially like if someone has a history of like back pain or stuff like that, like we'll change their card and, and change exercises based off the individual. If they have a history of something, especially taking place in the weight room, but just your overall fragile athletes, it's just more of a flag. Like you said, getting every stakeholder on the same page and making sure you do everything to try and keep those people healthy. Got it. Cool. Based off our time, there's a bunch of questions I wasn't even able to get to, sadly. Uh, you're talking about the speed work and even the conditioning. And I know that, uh, Nick, you talked about this with how you start to steer that work as to the nature of sport as you get closer to the season. But I was just curious, uh, and I ask this a lot, but the idea of can COD versus perception reaction, or even, and Nick, you, I think, mentioned this maybe after you were on the last show, but you had talked about even using parkour. Uh, I'm just curious if how you guys' movement, approach to movement, agility, in any capacity, has maybe in the last three years, um, any things that you guys had done that uh, you felt was unique and beneficial in how you continue to steer towards the more game speed reactive type modes? I don't think I've ever had a, a unique original idea, but <laughs> I think again, it, it, you're, you're going through that, that series of questions or, you know, earning the right, no matter how good your, your perception and your, your problem solving skills are. If you don't have just a, a rudimentary level of, of work capacity and uh, tissue tolerance for high speed changes of direction, do not pass go, do not collect $200. So this is where there there can be some value to closed environment change of direction drills with with no decision making because you're just kind of like putting money in the bank for that. Once you start to get beyond that, you you typically find that the real determining factor between who's good and who's not is not physical. Once you've cleared that barrier, it's more about the ability to perceive the environment, process process the information coming in, derive meaning, select a response, and execute it. But like all things in training, if you imagine uh, live football is the one RM of, of football, you, you're not going to do a one RM on day one. You have this, the psychoperceptual elements of training have to be progressed in a logical manner like everything else. So that's when you start to get into simpler, small sided games, 1v1, 2v2, 3v2, all, all kind of things like that. And then you're starting to put even more demand on top of that with install scheme, different options, you know, like route trees and so on, and then starting to put that under more and more stress and do it under more and more realistic conditions. Um, One thing that I've tried to do in recent years is view agility much more as a problem to be solved and trying to check off in a sequential manner, the tools that athletes need to possess in order to better solve those problems. And simultaneously do that without being told to stay in my lane. <laughs> <laughs> That's the trick, right? Yeah. Nick, you have anything there? Yeah, just kind of saying with that, like I, I've talked on this podcast of kind of how we bucket our agility. Um, and that's a big piece to me, especially working with football, just because they don't get it in the off season. The same way a basketball athlete or a soccer athlete who is playing their sport year round does. Um, so I think it's a huge component to add that perception perception action element to things and make sure that it's actually going to show up on the field. Um, and even if that's some of your linear work, curve linear work, whatever it may be, adding a perception action component to it, I think is extremely helpful, uh, especially the further along you get throughout the off season. But we also will have 
some minimal change of direction work in. Like I brought up in our special prep, it kind of goes against what I've said, but in that phase, when we're trying to prep them from a tissue standpoint and uh, energy system development standpoint, we use pre-planned cone patterns to just get work done. Early in the off season, we'll do like our eight vector cut stuff that I think we stole from like Bobby Stroop. Mm -hmm. He had the original eight vector kind of concept, but it hits all of your key angles and we just progress the speed. And then we eventually turn that into perception action elements as well. And from the parkour standpoint, like we do some sort of like tumbling variation three times a week, typically, just because if you watch a football game, almost every single play ends with somebody on the ground. So I think teaching something as simple as how to roll forward, backwards, right, left is important just to teach them how to land effectively and be able to roll out of things. It might be able to prevent one injury here or there just by teaching them how to do it. And it just teaches them some general skills that they find enjoyable most of the time. Yes. You you touched on it, Nick. Hey, like one one of the things that I anecdotally noticed last year was that the NBA didn't nearly blow up to the extent that the NFL did. And one of the hunches that I had is you can, you can still get fairly close to the, the, the psychoperceptual aspects of basketball playing pickup with a couple of guys. Cause I'm sure all those rich guys that have courts at their houses <laughs> bringing people yep. around to, to do that. So they're, they're keeping that blade sharp. Whereas if you look at football, you, you can't invite round 21 of your friends and, and pad up and, and be processing that relevant information. So that, that they're, they're a, a step slow in terms of the, uh, perception action coupling. And I think that's what, you know, I can't measure it, but I believe that's one of the reasons why the NFL experienced way more of a blow up in terms of like catastrophic injuries compared to the NBA, even though they, the NBA had a similar gap of, you know, several months. Yeah. And I think to that point, like people think of it as one, it is a competitive advantage. Like if the person who can respond and react quicker and more efficiently, typically wins. Like you have these guys who consistently outperform what their testing metrics say they should do because of their agility and their ability to actually play the sport and react uh, and end up in the right positions. But really from the, like you said, you can't put a number on it or quantify it, but an injury reduction standpoint or injury mitigation, however you want to term it, if you're not doing something this perception action oriented, all off season, it's just straight up programs, change of direction drills over and over. And you go out to play the sport, you are ill-prepared in a lot of ways. But I think the biggest factor for that is it's going to change the kinematics and the positions that you're in fundamentally when you're changing direction, when there's another person there versus if you're going and touching the line, bracing with your backhand to try and trim your times down, wherever it may be. So I just think it's an important part especially for the football sport, like you said, where you just don't get that exposure to guys aren't playing seven on seven on their own at home. You need to expose them to larger groups, one-on-one matchups, anything that's getting them to compete against somebody else. Yeah, it makes sense in the level of like just raw information coming in the system. And I know in basketball, it's a lot too, but I think about like triangle offense, we were working in smaller sectors and football you have... I mean, as far as I understand it, there could be a lot more, a lot more going on. Basically, just like what you said, Kier, and just being sensitive to that demand. And you can't, it's like one of those things that you can't just put a number to on and get a simple answer, I think, because I think that's what we oftentimes look for. And maybe that's where just, you know, just knowing the sport better and understanding different sports and understanding the feedback loops in different sports and what they need to prepare is really important. And yeah, I really like that little anecdote. That cure makes a lot of sense. I'm, I'm such a like a, a jujitsu uh, fanboy, but that's one of the things that experiencing that personally kind of reinforces to you. Is if say like family gets in the way and I don't go to class for like just a week or two, the extent to which your thinking slows down and you're having to process everything and you're not just reacting and doing, you're like not in the groove. You know, multiply that by five or six. And then rather than rolling around on the ground, it's somebody getting in a position to fall into your knee. It should be no surprise that if guys don't do that for a long time, they're going to be at significantly more risk. Yeah, that, it makes sense with uh, Jeff Moyer. This was back, um, I don't know how many shows ago, but he had said that a lot of 
um, ACL injury in women's soccer was due to perception reaction based issues or something yeah. like that. There wasn't it wasn't just a strength. It was be an inability to perceive properly and then be in position. And then you probably got yourself in a bad position and yeah. everything that had to go had to do with that. The best way to not get hurt is don't put yourself in dumb positions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. Well, awesome. Well, hey, this has been a really good talk. I mean, and what, some of the best talks too, I don't get to all the questions. I probably was a little over the top aggressive when I wrote, I mean, I wrote tons of questions out for you guys, but <laughs> it was a lot of fun talking about what we did have a chance to get to. Um, and I know in terms of just the general art of preparation, it was fun to cover a lot. I know we didn't get into some of the more overarching themes, the wisdom. I would have loved to get into two more on how, like, perception reaction being awesome but how do we ideally integrate that right in that kind of gray another region between sport and strength coach but perhaps another time i'd imagine if we start talking about that it'll be another like 20 minutes yeah <laughs> maybe another time well cool well thank you guys so much um do you guys before we uh get out of here do you guys have any kind of concluding thoughts or anything you wanted to mention elsewhere uh, you know on, on anything we've talked about today i'll just give you the obligatory uh, plug for strength coach network <laughs> cool. Yeah, I was yeah, I was gonna ask about that. Maybe that's a double. So I was gonna ask about that too. So nothing for me. Just thanks for having us. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for tuning in to another show. Kier didn't mention it there at the end, but I wanted to make sure you guys headed over to check out his new course, uh, Strength Coach Network Fundamentals, which you can find at strengthcoachnetwork.com. Kier does awesome and extensive work, and there's a lot of great people speaking on that course. So be sure to check that one out. We'll see you guys next week with another great guest. Have a good one.